At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. This is Burnt Toast. I'm your host, Kenzie Wilbur, and today's episode is a rerun from this time last year. Back then, I sat down with a legendary food critic of the LA Times, Jonathan Gold. It was right around the time when the documentary about his work came out. It's called City of Gold, and if you happen to miss it, please go see it. Our conversation on cultural commentary through food and why he hates the word ethnic is as relevant as ever. That's up ahead, and I promise we only have a few reruns left. You guys have been so dang patient. We'll be back here on March 9th with a brand new season for you. Getting 20 minutes in a room with Jonathan Gold is sort of like feeding a very hungry person a single Altoid, or like feeding Jonathan Gold a single taco. So you try to speed through everything. His work as the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times, his column, Counterintelligence, which he started in 1986, it documents his discoveries in what he calls the real LA. You'll want to talk about his Pulitzer, too, the only one ever awarded for food writing. And you want to cover the new documentary, City of Gold, about the great mosaic of L.A.'s food culture. Jonathan Gold co-stars. Of course, if you ask him, his job description is a little simpler. You know, I, I just write about tacos. But when you talk to him, you learn he's curious in a way you don't expect from someone who's been eating as a job for 30 years. When he talks about food, he'll often break out in a laugh I can only describe as boyish excitement. It's infectious, and it makes his obsession for what he does seem innate. You need only a few minutes to see that it's easy because it's a part of him. I'm Kenzie Wilbur, this is Burnt Toast, and today I ask Jonathan Gold as much as I possibly can. But first, I had to settle something. There's this giant note that's sort of screaming at me from the top of my <laughs> notes to myself, and it says, do not use the word ethnic. Why? I read that you hate that word. Well, I I kind of do because everybody is ethnic. You know, white people from Iowa are ethnic. You know, Jewish people from Los Angeles are ethnic. Uh, French chefs with three Michelin stars are ethnic. But nobody ever talks about that as ethnic. And you can talk about food being a part of culture. You can talk about it being traditional. You can talk about you can talk about it as folk food if you want to in a certain way. But to dismiss food as ethnic means that you're consigning it to a category of otherness, which I think is unfair. And you you start out in a position vis-a-vis -vis the food that you really don't want to be in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that helps. I'm sorry, I'm mansplaining, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> no, you're simply explaining, and I, and I asked. 
Okay, well, that's a great segue to the fact that in City of Gold, the new documentary that just came out, um, which I think is excellent, by the way, uh, you're called a cultural commentator rather than a food writer. So do you see a difference between the two? Well, I am a food writer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a restaurant critic. It's what I do. But food writing or reviewing is cultural criticism in the same way as writing about a painting or writing about um, a play or writing about a movie is. It's the same idea of trying to see what the creator is doing, trying to see if he or she is living up to what she has in mind, putting it in the larger context of the culture, and trying to both describe it and explain it in a way that leaves the reader with a better understanding than she had to begin with. And also potentially in a way that's not super insidery um, or or it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you need a, a certain fluency in that genre in order to understand uh, or take something from it or be delighted by it. And that's actually one of the things I liked about the film, too, is that it, it doesn't feel like you need to un- know the players in food to follow along or to take something away. I wonder if that's also something that you think about when you're writing a review. I do. It's easy to be super insidery, and you know you're you're from you're from the food world, and you know when you're tasting something why something doesn't work, or what it's supposed to be doing, or what it's alluding to, and you can do a way do it in a way that's technical that would uh, be legible to you know the ten percent, five percent of the readership who works that way, or you can do it in a way that includes everybody in the conversation. And I think that's better. I mean I'd rather be part of the larger culture than of, you know, seventeen people in the NYU food program. Right. Or exactly in the same seventeen people <laughs> talking to each other back and forth continuously. Oh, with with the Twitter chatter back and forth, you know, including us, though I've never met you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you. You sometimes do feel as if you're part of this group and everybody's writing for one another. But it's a, it's a pleasant illusion, I think. So you say that you learned to eat on Pico Boulevard. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, when I was right out of school and I had a job you know, copy editing at um, a legal newspaper. I was bored out of my mind. I decided to make my project for the year to um, eat at every restaurant on Pico, which is, uh, it, it's a big artery in Los Angeles, but when people moved to the U.S. from other countries, they often tend to congregate along Pico. It's like Alley's Backport. And so I started a Salvadoran restaurant at one end, and I kept going down block, 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 mile after mile, until I got to um, a place by the beach that served chili fries. And I didn't make it all the way. I made it a really big chunk of the way. But the thing that was most important to me was the long strip of pico that was lined with signs in Spanish, which... You know, in my ignorance, I assumed was all Mexican because, you know, that's what we always think of having in Los Angeles. But in fact, when you did it 
store by store, you realize that, okay, this place is Salvador and this is Honduran. Mm-hmm. This one this one is Mexican, but from Jalisco. This one's Mexican, but from, you know, Sinaloa or Colima. Oh, wait, this one's also Salvadoran, but this is from a different part of El Salvador than this one. So there's the pupusas are made with rice as well as being made with corn. And it may be... Uh, a, a weird backhanded and superficial way to sort of introduce oneself to the culture of the city you live in. But I don't know. It worked. I suddenly thought of Los Angeles instead of being, you know, there's this neighborhood that this has this and this neighborhood has this as being divided into much smaller parts. That's like a mosaic that kind of fit into each other beautifully. You say that you try to approach every review as the reader would. Um, and you don't pretend to know things that you don't know, but the reality is you know a lot. So do you think that, you know, how much of that is possible after all, all that you've experienced in Ian? Um, I, I don't come into it as faux naive. I mean, I don't. Um, but there's the thing about eating in... Um, eating a food, eating, uh, experiencing cuisine that you may know really well. I mean, I've, let, let's say that I have eaten in 200 Hong Kong style restaurants in my life. I've probably had, you know, at least a thousand, probably more Hong Kong style Cantonese meals. But even though I have really strong opinions about what bowl of kanji is better than another bowl of kanji, what that might be, the quality of the seafood, the quality of the the yo chow, the, the crawler that gets dipped into it, uh, you know, whether the thousand-year egg is necessary or not necessary, whether the tofu should be soft or firm. I mean, there's a million mm-hmm. ways that that soup could be different. My approach to it, the way that it fits into my life and the culture that I have constructed for myself is far different than somebody who actually grew up in Hong Kong eating kanji every day. Even at this point, I may have eaten more bowls of kanji than she has. She still approaches it from a different place than I approach it. And I can't pretend to understand it in the way that she would. Mm-hmm. Can I nitpick for a second to ask what you think might make a thousand-year egg necessary? Um, There's that little bit of slight firmness and slight slipperiness, and there's that sort of skunky, sulfury thing. Super skunky. When it slides down your throat. I actually don't love thousand-year eggs, but I understand people that do. Mm -hmm. There's actually a a new kanji shop that opened up in San Gabriel a a couple of months ago that does, it's kind of like baller kanji. It's like super high-end kanji. They roast (laughs) the rice a little bit. So there's like some like toasty flavor to it. It's a little looser in texture than the sort of porridgey one you get in the, the morning. And then they have in the mornings and places. And then they have tanks of live, live seafood so you can get, you know, $300 worth of abalone in your porridge if you want to. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's like the caviar service of, of porridge. Yeah, so much so. I mean, their basic $13 porridge is really good, though they always try to upsell you. Sure. Don't, you want, don't you want to put a lobster in that? <laughs> <laughs> don't you want a little gold leaf on the edge of that? <laughs> Okay, do you see what he did there with the baller kanji? 
I asked him to talk about Thousand Year Eggs, and he spun off into an ad hoc restaurant review. This is what talking to Jonathan Gold is like. He leaves a trail of recommendations for you to find as you're having a conversation. Speaking in restaurant is not just his job. It's who he is. I wanted to talk to you about what you see as the the role of a critic. Uh, The role of the critic is to find new things that are wonderful and present them in a way that helps people understand what they are and why they're wonderful. Or conversely, I guess, why things that are considered to be wonderful may be less wonderful than Mm -hmm. perhaps one might have imagined. Mm -hmm. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. And, I mean, do you, do you ever go into it wanting to service also, you know, the restaurant owner and not just the reader? Uh, I can't say I care less about what they think, but it's not important to me. It doesn't matter. Is there a, is there a factor of just creative expression? Well, it is creative, and, you know, we all do it in different ways. And and to me, the, the writing is vitally important. I mean, it's the it's the part of the process I stress out on the most. I don't stress out that much on trying to figure out the context in which somebody is doing monkfish liver differently. Mm-hmm. But in being able to describe it in a way that will make you sort of taste the monkfish liver in a way that will make you understand why something that you may think is vile is actually not just necessary but delicious. You once went to a restaurant 17 times before reviewing it. Right. Which place was this? It's not It's not there anymore. It was uh, like a ty- kind of a Taiwanese noodle shop. And the first time I went, um, I hadn't experienced stinky tofu before. I hadn't really had bitter melon like that. You've had bitter melon? Yeah, it, once or twice. It's one of, I mean, in certain ways, it's one of God's jokes, right? Because you braise it the right way. And it's just this <laughs> luscious texture. It's like the best, sweetest melon you've ever had, except it's not sweet. It has this bitterness that just peels the cornea right off your eyeballs. <laughs> and it stays with you for like half an hour. There was a, There was a soup that was sort of... It's like something thickened with okra, but a little more so, so that, you know, you picked up a spoonful and it snapped back into the bowl and it had this weird smokiness, like somebody has stubbed out a cigarette in it. And, <laughs> but it, it, it's... Which I just assume is entirely possible. What was their, what was their health department grade? <laughs> but the thing is, it, it was, it was like a nice restaurant. People there were clearly happy to be there. They, it, it wasn't a dive. People were really nicely dressed. And everybody was clearly there on purpose. So it would have been really easy to have written that review, which would have been really funny and people would have liked a lot. But it would have been insensitive. I knew that the problem wasn't that the food was bad. The problem was that I was coming to it with a kind of cultural relativism that was sort of inappropriate that wasn't being respectful enough to the food. And I felt that I owed it to this careful 
studied cooking that I really hated to at least understand it. So I kept going back and I kept going back. And at one point, I think the waitress thought I wanted to date her, which I didn't. (laughs) And uh, I I would. I would. (laughs) And finally, I got to the point where I understood the food. I understood the context in which was being served. I understood the aesthetic they were going for. And I felt as if I could, even though I didn't like this, that I could write about it. And I wrote about it in a slightly conditional way, sort of talking about my experience, talking about the journey to this place of understanding, but also very, very, very much um, implying that if these were not your aesthetics, you probably wouldn't dig it that much. And and, and you just knew after 17. You knew... You, you sort of had it. You had a better grasp. I did have a better grasp. Being a critic, I think, in particular, it just it seems so singular. Did you try and talk to anybody else about the kind of cuisine? Did you, you know, it seems like you're sort of working this all out in your own head and in your own office. Well, that's one of my rules, I guess, um, that people who sort of wrote covered this territory before I did did it a couple of different ways. One, they sort of went in there with, hoo, 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 the, you know, the... Sure. Uh, you know, they went in there without a great place of knowledge. They described it. It was kind of Yelp review There was a way that people would go in there with a, you know, a, dis- a distinguished visitor who did understand the cuisine. And they would either have it explained to them and talk about it that way, you know, which is to say talking about things that they didn't know about because somebody had told it to them. Or they would... Um, have the other person be like the Virgil in the review, and they'd be describing what the other person was doing, or they would, or they would just dismiss it because it was funny and it tasted weird and it wasn't for them. But the idea that you have to not just study, I'm not saying other people don't study and other people didn't work and other, but that they couldn't dismiss this as something that could either be understood by somebody wiser than them and then have it be information imparted or to be something that they made fun of. Mm-hmm. Or to just be understood by a different palette. Right. I mean... And to me, the the journey towards understanding is the most important part of it. I mean, I know a lot of what people want restaurant from restaurant critics. In fact, what people from want from restaurant critics is this is good, this is bad, this is where I should make a reservation for for my wife's birthday. And I try to give them as much of that as I can. And in this thing I do every year, the the 101 Best Restaurants, I do that. And that's probably read more than everything else I do put together if Mm -hmm. you look at the Google Analytics. And it's just a fact of life and the internet. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Texture. Texture is an app that lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. Breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you most, or let their team pick them for you. Texture has made it easy to find articles you care about. There's something here for everyone. You can read The New Yorker. You can hit up my producer Kristen's favorite magazine, Us Weekly. Or you can dive deeper with your personalized collections. 
Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. They're offering a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash toast. Again, that's texture.com slash toast. Has anything changed since you started? I mean, certainly the question of anonymity has, right? Like everybody used to be, you know, we used to disguise to go into a restaurant. And now that's changed a little bit. Last year, you sort of like came out in a sense. Right, I did. Um, Restaurant critics have always been known, um, always. And it was... By the by, the restaurateurs, not necessarily by the public. I mean, there was a point where, um, on the on the day after, uh, I, I I won I won the Pulitzer, and my picture was accidentally put up by somebody who worked at the paper. It's a really odd thing to win the Pulitzer <laughs> and not be able to have your picture. <laughs> Sort of broadcast, right? So it was broadcast, and uh, it wasn't supposed to be, but it was. Right. And, and I went to uh, you know a taco truck in Bell Gardens or something, and somebody in the line at the truck said, "You're that guy. You're that guy who won that thing." <laughs> <laughs> well said. But you know, re- restaurant owners have always known who the critics were, mm-hmm. and really, those are the only people that we're trying to hide from to begin with. Here's what he means by hiding. In the 2015 L.A. Times piece that quote-unquote drops his restaurant critic mask, he writes, I've posed for pictures shrouded in gauze, wearing a dinosaur mask, and shaded into a Hitchcockian silhouette. My face has been obscured by giant wine glasses, beer steins, menus, stacked dim sum steamers, Wheaties boxes, a Thomas the Tank engine, and a perforated tortilla. My Facebook profile picture is of a Jonah Gold apple. I've appeared on some television shows hidden behind a potted plant and on others with my face pixelated as if I were in the witness protection program. I once walked backward from a lectern after winning an award because I was afraid of being photographed. I have open table accounts under many different names, a habit of paying bills and cash and a burner phone account, all in an attempt to keep my identity a secret from chefs and staffs of restaurants I've reviewed. In City of Gold, he likens this to playing a role in an action thriller. It's kind of like the fat man's version of the born identity, I think. Did you feel some kind of mutual relief the first time that you went out after publishing that piece in 2015? Um, like you and the restaurateur both, I suppose, and the staff? A little bit, because it wasn't, because again, not being anonymous, especially now with the internet that everybody's pictures up somewhere, that it was more about me not having to pretend that I don't notice them pretending not to notice me noticing them noticing me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in the relationship between the high-end places, the places that, you know, we're expected to like or that are all the rage or and and sort of the 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 restaurants with a C grade in the back of a strip mall um, is there is one more important than the other to you? If the food's great, the food's great. If there's something that I'm eating that's blowing my mind, then I don't really care where I'm eating it. And in Los Angeles, particularly, the line between um, I hate these words too, but between high and low has just been exploded. Mm-hmm. So in the movie, you have um, the um, gorilla taco truck. 
uh, which is owned by a guy, Wes Avila, who, you know, who, who worked with the Cos, who worked at some of the best restaurants in L.A., who uses the same produce from the same guys and gets actually a better quality of pig than anybody else in town and gets like the super, you know, A-grade Santa Barbara sea urchin. But he puts it on tacos and sells it for $6 instead of putting on a tasting menu and charging 130 Should he be penalized for doing that? I don't think so. Is his food worse than the person who's in the restaurant with the white tablecloth? No, actually, it's kind of better. It's kind of more accessible and every bit is delicious. And to make those kind of delineations are meaningless, right? Um, that that at this point I don't I don't do a star system, but at this point I think stars are more for category of restaurant than they are for actual quality of the food. Yeah, so that, so that line sort of doesn't really exist, which the high and low line in a lot of places it's been sort of dissolved. Although, if there's a restaurant in town that everyone's really excited to go to, it seems a lot like it makes a lot more sense to write a negative review of something if you don't like it there than it is to write a negative review of a hole in the wall 20 miles outside of town that no one's going to anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd never write a uh, a negative review. You know, oh, you know that Southern Thai restaurant under the overpass? <laughs> and the, don't and go to there. The north? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> 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 but, but 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 the, but the hard the hard part is, and the part that people don't think about as much as that, is that if I'm writing about a bowl of Taiwanese noodles, I I sometimes will eat like 14 bowls before I find one that's like the one that I that if I'm going to send my readers to drive you know 35 miles from their comfort zone right. in order to have something, it had better be the best version of that. And it's really hard to have the, you know, 13 or 14 bowls of noodles that are pretty good. I imagine knowing that you found the one is sort of just like hearing a really great song and saying that's it. But do you have some kind of internal rubric for that? Oh, I, I actually, I, I love what you just said. That's so cool. I mean, I've, it's, oh God, this is name dropping. But when I, fir- when I first saw Nirvana back in there, sort of like playing little punk rock club days, and I actually didn't, I hadn't heard the record. I didn't know them at all. They played uh, Negative Creep, and it was like, I mean, there's this thing about like a great punk rock song that for three minutes you're able to persuade yourself that is the very best song that has ever been recorded in the entire world. And there was that thing about Nirvana and it was like, oh, my God. And then it comes back and it says, you know, it's just some skinny guy on the stage, (laughs) you know, scratching himself. But I mean, there's but it's almost like that when you find the dish, right? Yes. 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 So, well, so that it's hard. It's hard in the, in a way to sort of uh, you know understand exactly where you're coming from. Um, we put so much trust in the words that you write in in the in your palette, but yet you're sitting there and you just know it's something that it's hard to put words to. There's a lot of trust in that sense between you and your readers. Yeah, it's it, the aesthetics of food is an interesting thing that way, right? I mean, if if I were say the classical music critic and I were going to tell you uh, why the Brodsky Quartet played Shostakovich uh, better and differently than the Arditi Quartet, I would have 
the vocabulary to do that. Mm-hmm. I would be able to be fairly exact. I would be able to pinpoint it. And maybe not a general reader, but somebody who really knew about music would know that. And it's much harder to do with food. Why is one bowl of soup better than another mm-hmm. bowl of soup? It's the most difficult task I have. And sometimes you can only say so much. Sometimes you just got to eat that soup yourself. Yes. Is there a a review or a restaurant that you're particularly proud of unearthing or sort of giving light to? Um, I, I I can't think of one offhand. Well, I ask because it just seems constant. I mean, you've been doing this for so long, and, and I'm wondering if you think that there's still a lot to discover. There's so much to discover. I mean, I'm, I mean, not not just individual stuff. Like, uh, I did this weird survey of restaurants with uh, the word tasty in their names. Because <laughs> <laughs> and, and somehow it became a rage among not just Chinese, but a certain kind of like really recently arrived Chinese. Maybe they saw everybody doing it and it was cool. Or I don't, the, the Chinese names are quite different. But I found like a couple places, I mean, like a place that everybody thought made sort of Shandong style dumplings, but they turned out to specialize in, uh, really specialize in hand-thrown Lancho style um, noodles that were just fantastic. And that's something that I, w- I wouldn't have found out otherwise. But you would believe how often I find not just a new dish that I haven't had before, but like a completely different cuisine. And then, and then there are the people at the other end of the spectrum. And some of them, some of them are sort of awful and not intellectually together. And the sort of cuisines they're cobbling together in their head aren't that interesting. But mm-hmm. when you get somebody who's figured it out, it's it it's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, up to the, you know the, the ultimate one of you know going. Going to Noma. You ever been to Noma? No, gosh, I wish. <laughs> but it, but it's it's almost like you know all the people before him doing the you know modern cuisine were like sure. there was a special effect shop and he was the guy who figured out how to make the movie, how to really like uh, do do narrative food. And you're yeah, that's right on. And when you see somebody thinking about food at that level, I mean that's. That's really thrilling, too. It doesn't have to be, you know, from Wuhan for me to be mm-hmm. overjoyed by it. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to me. This was a treat. Thanks. It was really fun. City of Gold is out in theaters now. Go watch it, then set a price alert for plane tickets to L.A. I did this. You will, too. And that's it for this episode of Burnt Toast. Thanks to my producer, Kristen Meinzer, and also to Laura Mayer, Henry Malofsky, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. Our Twitter handle is at Food52, or you can leave us a review on iTunes. For Jonathan Gold, I'm Kenzie Wilbur. We'll talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>